Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello and welcome to episode 45 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business side of rock and roll. The Main Man philosophy was to provide funding that enabled their artists to fully explore their creative freedom, while pioneering outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. I know he started a riot with the Americans and they said, oh, we cash, oh, that, that's subversive and that's, uh, you know, oh, we went through hell. So, again, like the Diamond Dogs thing where they airbrushed the dick off, I mean, I was, I was having more erasure <laughs> problems. Never, it followed me all through the 70s. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included David Bowie, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Danica Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, and Lou Reed. Lou's gay one day, straight to you don't know what Lou is. In this episode, as Main Man founder Tony DeFries continues with his highlights of 1971, 50 years after he accompanied David Bowie to New York to sign a new deal with RCA Records that would set the foundation for David to enjoy incredible artistic success, DeFries explains why he decided that of all the major record labels looking for new talent at the time, he chose to sign with RCA. The first thing to do was to find a record company that would make a distribution deal rather than a straightforward signing. RCA were willing to do that for two reasons. First of all, they were looking to become part of the new wave of music. They'd missed out massively and they had no large group of people knocking on their doors saying, I've got the new Rolling Stones, I've got the new Beatles, I've got the new Graham Nash, because they'd missed out on all those acts. The idea of not keeping the records for longer than a certain period was simply a matter of persuading people like Rocco Laganestra and like Mel Ilberman, who was the head of business affairs, that they could still recoup their investment and make a lot of money if they had the license to the recordings for a long enough period and if they were willing to invest in promoting this particular performer and his recordings over a short period of time to get the revenue over a longer period of time. That was not a suggestion that most people came to them with, but it was a suggestion that they appreciated because they were already a major player in the radio and television business. They were a company that had been created by GE, General Electric, which was the outcome of the old Edison companies, and Westinghouse, which was still the Westinghouse business. These two businesses in America owned radio and they owned television because they had invented all the technologies that made it possible. RCA had a huge footprint with NBC, the National Broadcasting Corporation, the largest television network in the world. They really didn't need to make a profit on their records 
but they needed to have a place in the record industry that would be recognised. They needed the brand name, not the money. And I understood that, and they understood that. Nobody else around me, David, Lawrence, Norman, understood that. They all thought I was completely crazy to be going with a dinosaur record company that hadn't had a major rock star, except for Presley, who was already getting old and fat. This was inconceivable that this is where I wanted to land up, but this is exactly where I wanted to land up. Going to CBS and having this conversation was impossible because CBS had taken the position that they wouldn't provide any artist with a record deal unless they could own the recordings. That came from a mentality that believed ownership was everything. But very often, participation can be more important than ownership. So my message to RCA was participate and become the brand of an artist who's going to be the most successful writer and performer in the world. A big claim, which they believed, luckily for me. <laughs> so we did this RCA deal in September the 9th of 1971. I personally had signed David to an exclusive management agreement, which has been referred to as having a perpetual term. That's not accurate. It wasn't a perpetual agreement. It was an agreement that David and I could each walk away from by simply giving the other party six months' notice. If neither party elected to leave, the agreement would remain in force. That made it not a fixed term, but also you can't really write perpetual contracts. So we didn't try and do that, or I didn't try and do that. In the same contract, we backdated it so that although the contract itself was signed in 1971, August, I believe, the term began in April, and April 1, actually, of 1970. So when we went to talk to RCA at the beginning of 71, it was very much a covert conversation because we still had issues with Mercury, and we told them about that. I explained to them what we were doing and how we would ultimately be free of Mercury, or David would be free of Mercury, and that when he was, I needed a record company who were willing to get behind him, and that if we were successful, we would have not only two brand new albums, but two albums that are essentially brand new because nobody had ever heard them, and these were the two Mercury albums we expected to recover. All of this was still in the negotiating stage, but we'd gone far enough by the 1970, probably early 1971 dates to know that we could walk away with records that we had yet to make. We'd made Hunky Dory, I think we were making Ziggy in 71. So during 71, I had a number of conversations with RCA about how do we get to this place that we wanted to be in. And we did finally have an agreement ready to sign before that 9th of September date. And when everyone was assembled, and Mick and David were both in America, we went off and had a signing at RCA in New York 
and David's career began as Bowie. The road to that signing with Rocco Laganestra, who was president of RCA Records, and Mort Hoffman, who was the VP of Commercial Operations, which effectively made him the COO of RCA Records. And Mort was in charge of distribution, recording, licensing, although he didn't have a lot of that, except for other labels, of course, and sales, marketing and sales. The fact that these two people were actually there for this signing is in itself indicative of the fact that they already knew what the deal was. They'd essentially agreed to it. The original contract, which we still have, shows that many insertions and deletions were made by hand, most likely either leading up to or on the day of the signing. Some of them would have been made clearly beforehand because Lawrence Myers wasn't at the signing, but he was the director of GEM. And since this contract was between RCA Records and GEM Music Productions, he was the person who signed for GEM as the director or managing director of GEM. And he had initialed every page and in many cases initialed the changes. If he initialed handwritten changes, that meant that the contract was created before. And it's my recollection that everything that was in that contract had been discussed by myself with someone like Mel Oberman, who was head of business affairs, or with Dennis Katz, and it had been approved by Rocco or discussed with Rocco directly. And that Norman Kurtz, who was involved in the negotiation of the terms with RCA and in drafting language for the contract, was also not necessarily present at the meeting, but was also an indication that RCA knew what they were being asked for and they knew what they were being offered and essentially the contract said that RCA will get the exclusive services of David Robert Jones, Bowie, for a period of years or a number of recordings. It was expressed as being a 10-year license which was based on a period of eight years generated by options in each year, there would be a certain number of recordings. In the first year, and this was a very unusual requirement, RCA would accept, pay for, and release four albums. Now, in most cases in the 1970s, if you were making a record deal with a major label, they would start out by promising to record and pay for and release if it all met their considerations or requirements but assuming that they approved of the recording and they approved of its technical satisfaction for pressing they would release a certain number of singles not albums singles <laughs> for someone to suggest that they agreed to release and pay advances for and remember these advances were not small they were between 37 and 
$75,000 per album, depending on the exact terms of delivery and release of that particular album. In the first year, RCA agreed to release four albums, which is unheard of except for the fact that they knew and we knew that we had two albums that could be recovered complete from Mercury and would effectively, for the worldwide audience, be new albums, since nobody had really listened to them or heard about them before. But, on the other hand, they'd been massively reviewed. One of them, of course, contained Space Oddity, which was a substantial hit, albeit novelty record. But Man Who Sold the World, which was the first album that Mick Ronson was on with David, had got tremendous reviews not many sales (laughs) in fact virtually zero sales but lots of great comments from respected journalists in the music scene and that was something that RCA understood very well because of their experience in electronics and television if you had a brand that you could accelerate the acceptance of essentially develop And that's what they'd done with Presley, after all. If you had a brand, you could make it a successful brand by simply applying enough marketing and money. And that's what we wanted them to do. Now, why would they do that if they couldn't keep the records? Well, part of the exercise from RCA's point of view was not about making money from record sales. It was about being in the same club as Atlantic and... Capital and Decker and Philips, they were a record company without a major star. Nobody considered Presley to be a major star in the 70s in the form of a rising major star. Their new talent was largely, with the exception of Lou Reed, non-existent and Lou wasn't yet a major star. The idea they could turn the RCA brand around so that for record company purposes, it became a player, was the reason why they made the deal. And I knew that. I knew that RCA were desperate to be a player. Here they were in a sea of players like A&M, who are a small record company started by a marketing guy, Jerry Moss, and um, a trumpet player, hence the A and the M. How can a trumpet player have a record company that's more recognised than RCA? I mean, it was very frustrating for the RCA corporate folk to say, well, everyone knows that we're NBC, that's National Broadcasting Company, that's the world's most significant television provider, but our record company is a joke. We're not happy about that. So it wasn't just RCA we were talking to. We were talking to NBC Roque Lagunestra had been delivered as the new master of the world at RCA Records, having come from a high executive position at NBC, young guy in his probably 40s, whose job was turn RCA Records around. It wasn't don't spend the money, it was turn the record company around so it's a player. And that was his job, that was his brief, and I knew that. And that wasn't the brief that I was going to discover at CBS. It wasn't the brief I was going to discover at Atlantic. Atlantic already had Armit and 
his brother. They were running a record company that had the Rolling Stones and had lots of other acts. RCA wanted to be as important and as recognised in the industry as the EMIs and the Capitals and the Deckers and the Phillips and the Atlantics and the Electras and the Warners. They weren't on the list. They wanted to be on the list. So branding was what this was about. To have a brand that had an artist who might be the next most important singer-songwriter-performer was a tremendously appealing shiny toy. And when you're selling things to people, it has to be a shiny toy. They have to want it for all the wrong reasons, not the right reasons. The right reasons are boring, they're dull, and they don't make for good copy. (laughs) Now, David was an excellent example of his own uniqueness. Imagine RCA Records had never seen anybody who arrived with yellow shoes and a floppy hat (laughs) and baggy pants, and he was featured in his last album as wearing a dress. This was so outside of RCA's experience that it's absolutely astonishing that they actually agreed to sign him. But clearly, they thought he might make the grade. And he did. So it all worked out. So here's a contract that, if you looked at it in total, was worth, if we count them up, seven years of two albums, that's 14, and one year of four albums, that's 18, and make that $50,000 an album, so you've got a between, depending on whether you're delivering an album in which year, that's an enormous advance for a record company to pay to an artist in the 70s who was unknown. You're talking about a 14-album commitment. It's going to cost them $700,000, where it took the Beatles years to get to the point where... Alan Klein could say, I'll get you X million dollars, which didn't win him, obviously, all the Beatles, but won him a lot of them. When Alan Klein told the Rolling Stones that he would get them $2 million, they signed without hesitation, and they didn't own their own recordings. He did thereafter. So those are the kind of comparisons to make here, because, as I say, RCA had been left behind And in the same way that if you want to be a Formula One racing brand, you have to spend the money. Imagine what would happen if you had a Formula One contest which didn't include Mercedes. How could they be left out? They're not going to be left out. They don't mind how much money they spend on the racing car or the circuit. They want to be acknowledged as part of the club that can do Formula One. That's what we did with David. We made him a Formula One performer before he was. And he fulfilled the expectations. And actually, in the end of the day, he exceeded their expectations, which was even better. So a plus for them, a plus for him. Now for David, although many people think that he could have done better financially, it's extremely unlikely Since when he died, his estate was valued at over $300 million. And it's certainly worth a lot more now, because in the last 10 years, his record sales have done nothing but increase. His songs have been featured in multiple movies and series and films. And even 
probably the only recording artist from that era and perhaps the only recording artist at all to have his recordings and those are also my recordings because I made them sent off into interstellar space and travelling in interstellar space now forever. That's interesting. It makes him an artist who's not just successful on this planet, but is actually successful in the entire known space that this planet occupies. A universal, literally, the first universal superstar. That's what RCA got. That's a big delivery. Tony DeFries explaining how and why he created a deal with RCA Records 50 years ago that provided the platform for David Bowie to become a superstar. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that were adding to the main man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.